Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is now time for our two of Guy Talk, which means let me know what questions you have for the power panel. I've got uh, the professor, the pastor, and the Sunday school teacher, and special guest, the president, Dr. Corbin Hornbeek, is with us as well today. So I've got uh, Greg, Tom, and Jeff, and Corbin all ready to go to answer whatever questions you have for us, 877-933-2484. And to get things started, gentlemen, again, welcome to our two. Hi, Bill. Yeah, thank Good you. to be thank here. You. Thank, be you. Here. thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm just curious, Corbin, I'd like to start with you. Tell me about uh, the amount of decisions that you have on your plate on any given day, being the president of a university, and how you have to take every decision you make to prayer. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, there are uh, just endless, endless decisions. Endless, isn't it? it really, it really yeah. is. Um, the, um, you know, everything that we do at the University of Northwestern and Northwestern Media, of course, as well, um, filters through our mission. And our mission exists within two guardrails. Uh, it, the one guardrail is the Word of God, and we stand Amen. on the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we are unashamed about that. And so that's really our starting point for how we think about uh, every decision that has to be made. Where does this fit within the Word of God? How can we understand the decision that needs to be made in light of the Word of God and uh, the implications? The other guardrail, of course, is our uh, our doctrinal and theological statements. And so when we consider those two guardrails, those are really, really helpful guardrails. Now, um, there is also... Uh, you know, outside of that, the the council of wisdom that exists within the university and president's cabinet, we grapple with decisions, big decisions together. I, I feel like, you know, there are times where I've got to make the final decision, uh, but I don't operate in a vacuum. And president's cabinet uh, is a, uh, you know, our academic leaders, our you know, chief financial officer, enrollment, everything that uh, all the vice presidents of each division. And we, uh, we really debate things, we discuss things and come to a place where we don't always have consensus, but we do have a sense of leading from the Lord. Fantastic. Yeah. It's so cool to hear a university president to talk about planting their flag on the Word of God. I think so many universities, Christian universities around the country, that are waffling a little bit with the pressures of the culture, they are actually the ones that are under more pressure and are being attacked by the woke mobs and so on. The ones who are standing firm in the Lord, I think it's like this shield that says, oh, you know what? We, we don't have time to even try to, you know, influence them in any way because we're going to work on these other, you know, kind of squishy universities over here. Yeah. So it's really good to hear that. Well, thank you uh, for saying that because I, um, um, you know, there are times there, I think within uh, Christian higher ed- education exists within the larger marketplace of higher education. That includes public mm-hmm. higher education, includes, you know, private education, secular, everything. And we have a lot of constituents. Uh, we have our governmental um, association. We've got our alumni base, our donors, our students, our families. Uh, you know, there's yeah. so many people that have an opinion about what you should do. And so if you 
uh, if you make decisions to try to make people happy, you're done. Hmm. Um, and so that's really where I, I believe firmly in this role that that the Word of God gives us incredible freedom to act in accordance with that and to live our lives according to that and be yeah. at peace with that. Yeah, one of the things I've been really proud about, I, I teach here as well yeah. at, at the master's level, is that the University uh, of Northwestern has not sacrificed their values on the altar of expediency. Oh. And they've made a stand and declared it. And, and oftentimes, uh, you know, people will just say, well, these are the values that we hold as an organization. Yeah. They're great for platitudes or to put on the wall. But then you ask them a question, what is the decision that you made in the last three weeks or, or, or uh, an action you took within the last three weeks that validates and correlates with the values you say you right. hold? And so I'm, I'm proud that University of Northwestern is one that can answer that question. Yeah. Well, and I'll <clears throat> just say along those lines that, um, you know, when I went through the candidating process for this role, that was, um, that was an easy question for mm-hmm. me to answer. Um, the, the the all-sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration, the authority of the Word of God, uh, that is unchangeable. It's not up for grabs at Northwestern, um, and it really, truly does guide. Now, in terms of my prayer life, I mean, I, I wake up in the morning, and I, I do have a sense of, uh, Lord, help me. <laughs> <laughs> not surprised. <laughs> really. We, we help pray me, that too. Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, there's certain things that, that, just so many things that, you know, you can make decisions, but you can't see where that's going. And so sure. you really lean on wisdom of others and the Word of God. So good. Yeah. All right. Let me uh, ask, and I'm looking your direction, Jeff. Let, let's start a discussion on the characteristics of an ambassador. Well, we were just talking about this, right? This, a few this couple. Is why I would want to bring it up again. Yeah. And on, on, a, on the Tuesday part, we're doing, going through a... Um, uh, teaching on Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, and this idea that we as Christians are strangers and aliens in this world, that our true citizenship is in heaven, and God actually calls us his ambassadors. Now, an earthly ambassador, right, is someone that has a citizenship in one country and is set sent off to a different country where they are to live. Well, Scripture actually describes believers in the same terms. Our citizenship, our true citizenship, is in heaven, and God has sent us to this earth as, excuse me, as ambassadors in Christ. And I actually do this list. There's actually a dozen or so characteristics of an earthly ambassador that is consistent with how God describes us as the body of Christ in this world. Here's a couple of them. We can talk about these. Uh, an ambassador is to speak only that which the president directs him to say. He's not to speak on his own accord, but only that which he's been instructed to say. Jesus, now, Jeff, I need to interrupt because uh, how does that apply, Corbin, with you and me right now? <laughs> <laughs> can I only speak with what you want me to say? Well, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I just got real He's nervous. <laughs> so John 12, this is obviously in regards to Jesus, where he says, for I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me, uh, he says what, what he wants to say. Uh, ambassadors enjoy what's called diplomatic immunity in the country where they live. They're actually not under the laws of the country that they live. Colossians 2.20 says, Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, though you still belong to it, do you submit to the rules? Yet, 
a good ambassador is supposed to submit and follow the laws of the country that they are in. And in the same way, Romans 13 says, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except which God has established. It goes on and on in terms of these kind of uh, um, characteristics of an ambassador, which we would recognize and understand in, in the world. And, and that's how God actually describes us. The last one is actually my favorite. And what does a kingdom or a country do right before they wage war with that other country? They recall their ambassadors. And that's exactly what God says before he pours out his wrath on the world. He recalls his body, the church, back in what's called the rapture of the church. He recalls his ambassadors. So it's kind of a cool study. There's lots of parallels between Mm. earthly ambassadors and us as heavenly ambassadors. Yeah, Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 is is the passage that talks about that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And when I talk to men in my ministry, I tell them, you need to understand that you have been given a new passport. You belong to the kingdom of God. You're to represent the king in a fallen world. You're seen as a sojourner, an alien, a foreigner, but not in God's kingdom. So you are to be in the world for the sake of the world, to minister to the world. And you're representing the king, but you're under new management. You need to recognize that you're not of the world anymore. It's not a multicultural perspective that says, well, the culture of the kingdom of God is the same as the culture of of any other culture. They all have value. No, it stands above every other culture. Absolutely. I coached football for many years. And one of the things that I learned from the other coaches is that you have to build up your team. And so at the beginning of the season, when practice starts, you don't say to your team, you know, you guys are really winners. And then you and then you don't say that again for the rest of the season. You're saying that before every game. You know, you're identifying over and over who you are, what you can do. This is what the local church needs to be doing. We need to be telling our congregations over and over and over, look, you are the ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are the ministers of reconciliation. And what authority that gives in the sense of you have a right to speak for Jesus. Not just speak on your own, but speak through his word, the truth. And think about it for a moment. If Christians in this culture understood that and stood up to the universities, the school boards, the politicians, and all the other things going on, we would not have the issues we have today. But Christians got real silent because I think we have put ambassadorship almost in the realm of being, you know, a college professor. You know, it's a, it's a real high thing. Well, yeah, We're all ambassadors. Exactly. Every Christian is an ambassador, but— Ministers of Reconciliation, ambassadors. I I grew up never hearing that. Not once that I was an ambassador of the gospel or a minister of reconciliation. You know, I heard a lot about tithing. I heard a lot about other things, but never that. There's another aspect that I think we also forget, and that is that when the world persecutes us as an ambassador for Christ, we have to remember they're not persecuting us. Their insults are not directed at us. They're directed at the Lord, yeah, right? Absolutely. And in this world, you will have trouble. You will have persecution. But Jesus says, remember, they're really persecuting me. So we also have to remember that. Too often, I think Christians take rejection and persecution just personally. They're not attacking you. They're, they're attacking your home country and the king of who you represent. And anything that we're going to do or say is going to reflect of the president or the king of the country. So whatever we do and say is going to be a reflection of the Lord. Well, that's where all the hypocrites come from. I mean, you hear that all the time. Church is filled with hypocrites. Well, of course it is. 
We're flawed people. Where else are they going to go to church? Yeah, where else you go? And we, <laughs> we want more hypocrites to come and hear the truth. The reality is we are there to represent the Lord. It's not them for people to admire just who we are. Absolutely. First Peter 2.12 says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are supposed to live uh, a holy, set-apart life sure. to, so that so that nothing damages our testimony right. when we hold out the words of life to the world. What I say all the time to the men that I lead is nobody cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and honor under God's authority, people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Good Why? Word. Because they can't get past a life well lived. They can deconstruct your faith. They can argue with your beliefs. They can say your truth ends where my nose begins. But they cannot argue with a life well lived consistently, congruently, and coherently. Greg, give your illustration, uh, the, the linear illustration of what you believe is so important because what you believe is going to shape your values and what your values are. Yeah, yeah. It's Share with whole, that again. Yeah, the whole idea is that when you take a look at Scripture, you find that the, the word heart is used uh, over 900 times, and it's a metaphor for four different constructs. It's uh, core beliefs, uh, core, or central beliefs, core values, worldview, and motives. And what you're referring to is your central beliefs, what you truly believe at the core of your being, establishes your values. Yeah. The hills you're prepared to die on, the principles you intend to live by, the filter through which you process all decisions of any consequence. Your central beliefs establish your values. Your values inform your worldview or the perceptual attitudes you have about life, the dots that you connect and make sense of your observations. And your worldview uh, then um, uh, it establishes um, your motives or, or it energizes your motives. And your motives then will result in behavior that will either bring glory and honor to God or dishonor and shame. Central beliefs establish your values. Your values inform your worldview. Your worldview conditions your motives. Your motives energize your behavior, and your behavior will always reflect the condition of your heart. Yeah. Yeah. What, what you're doing speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, in Western culture, I mean, we, we're good with words. But when you take a look at somebody's life and see a life of consistency, it's interesting that I think it's in Hebrews 13, 7, and 8, where it talks about, um, you know, honoring people who are leading you, and then it says about consistency. And it seems like those two verses are almost out of place, but the fact of the matter is is that your consistent lifestyle, your consistent pattern of engaging the world around you speaks volumes, as you said, Bill, mm -hmm. about whose allegiance to whom you belong, where you've planted your flag. Mm -hmm. There's about 8 billion people in this world, and what I don't think you need is another opinion. So we want to go right to the Word of God and see what it says. And we want to have your questions come in, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. After a short break, we'll be right back. You've probably heard me talk about hope quite a bit this season, and I think it's because we need to hear more about it. We need to encourage one another with hope. We need to build one another up with the hope that we have in Christ. And if you are feeling lonely or maybe you are having periods of disappointment or despair and you need hope, we want you to know that you can always come to God's word for hope. Hope will always be there for you waiting. And if you are struggling to make it to the next moment, 
I want you to be able to text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. The power panel is in place. We've got Greg, Tom, and Jeff with special guest Dr. Corbin Hornbeek here joining us for Guy Talk. So if you have any questions for him, let me know. I will ask him, and uh, all you have to do is send it over, 877-933-2484. Okay, in James chapter 1, it talks about uh, when you ask in faith, you have to make sure there's no doubting because anyone who doubts will not receive anything from the Lord. How do we uh, how do we think about that? How do we understand that in context? Don't doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've made that easy, right, Jeff. That's right to the point. I like it. Uh, succinct. The, the risk is with this passage is that you uh, are going to interpret it as the, like God is a vending machine, that if I put in my faith... I can get whatever I'm asking for because I'm not doubting it, but I'm putting my faith in and then getting what I want back from God. Remember, one of the keys to asking God for anything is when we ask according to his will. Mm -hmm. When we ask in the name of Jesus, we are asking in accordance with his will. So if you are asking something that is God's will, he will answer it, obviously. Uh, But if not, you can't say, Lord, give me a new Mercedes and I'm not going to doubt about it and you're going to get it. That's not what this verse says. I I hope that everybody is hearing that, you know, if you you have doubts, it doesn't mean you're disqualified from the kingdom of God. If you have questions about it, what that passage is talking about is the kind of doubt that wavers, that's double-minded, it says. It says right here, for that person must not oppose, they will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So it's talking about a culmination of a life of, of doubt, that you've been wavering between two positions, that you haven't made a decision, you've been straddling both worlds, mm-hmm. and you haven't come to a conclusion, you haven't stepped out in faith and made a decision. I think the NIV actually translates that Greek concept as double-minded, actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the uh, when I look back in these verses here, it, it begins by saying, ask for wisdom. Hmm. Uh, ask God to give us wisdom. It's the one thing that in, throughout the scripture that we can always count on God to give us is wisdom. And wisdom and the request for wisdom, I think, precedes, you know, where are we in our doubt? Uh, yeah. And really questioning, where's what's the source of our doubt? Uh, well, let's stop and ask God for wisdom first. Well, our doubt is believing something other than what we ought to be putting, putting our faith in. Yeah. The biblical concept of faith is not the amount of faith. That's why Jesus talks about a mustard seed. It's where you put that faith. Hmm. So it's not how much I believe. It's who I'm trusting in ultimately, and I'm giving it over to Jesus. And he said, even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could say this mountain be moved. Not very much, but you're putting it in the right place. Doubting is when you're looking for something else for the answer. Hmm. Or you think, I've got to think this through myself and come up with my own answers. Where most of us need to be driven back to getting on our knees in front of Jesus and asking him for wisdom. Mm-hmm. Great, uh, great feedback, guys. All right, here's a question. How could Jesus have a different will than the Father? Go to the garden. Not my will, but thy will be done. How could Jesus have a different will than the Father? 
Well, remember, every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth has a will, has a free will. This is something that we see in Scripture. So Joshua says it this way, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Elijah said to Israel, how long will you waver between these two? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. Choose this day, right? So the Scripture is full of this idea that man has a free will, and 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 we're supposed to use that free will to do God's will, to say, like Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus did have a will, but he submitted it perfectly to the Father's will. Yeah, we have to recognize that he was not only God in the flesh, he's also man. Correct. So... Well, the Bible says that he was tempted in every way that we are. <clears throat> well, if he didn't, if there was no chance he could have failed, then it's a sham. Yeah. No, he really could have failed. But by walking faithfully with the Father, he never did. That doesn't mean he didn't have an opinion that might not always have lined up immediately with what should be done. But look where he went with his opinion. He went to the Lord. I wish I would do that all the time. Because too often my opinion outrules my good convictions, and I get myself in trouble. Jesus, though, spoke to the Father. That's the heart of the Christian walk. When you are in Christ, you are to say, not like John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. Paul said it in Galatians 2.20 like this, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So it's this idea of not I, but Christ. That's the picture of the vine and the branches, by the way. Jesus is the true vine. I'm just a branch. As I abide in him, he will do his will in and through me. All right. Nicely done. Next question. Will we have families in the new world? Will I have the same spouse as I do now? <laughs> this is a, I just was teaching on this on Monday night in my class called Salvation, Sanctification, and Glorification. We were talking about our future glorification and what that is like. And... This this question arises because uh, of this when the Sadducees tried to trap Jesus with the question about the 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 woman who had seven husbands, right? And they each died, and and they basically say whose husband will she be uh, at the resurrection? I remember the S- Sadducees actually didn't believe in the resurrection, so they're asking a question uh, based on a premise that they actually didn't even believe in. Uh, but Jesus says to them, "You error because you don't know the Scripture." He then goes on to say that there will be no, they will, we will be like the angels of heaven. There'll be no giving in marriage. And, and so some say that we won't have spouses or we won't remember our family relationships in one way. I don't, I don't think that's what it's saying. I think it's what it's saying that once we are in glory, we won't reproduce. We won't procreate like we do on earth. Because if we did that, and we had children in eternity in the new heaven and new earth, well, suddenly you'd introduce these free wills again that may choose not to follow Christ, and then you have sin all over again. You got the whole same problem. I don't think God erases our memories. I think we will remember our special relationships in this world. My parents, who are my parents in this world, will be my parents for all of eternity. My brother will be my brother for all of eternity. And I think those relationships will remember and value for the rest of time. Thank you for that, Jeff. All right. My friend is upset because his wife's nephew is not living a Christian life. He blames his father-in-law and calls him a pig. (laughs) When I brought up the commandment about honoring father and mother and that it is important for his wife to be able to love and honor her now deceased father, my friend responded, 
The commandments to love and honor God far supersede those to honor one's father and mother. And in any event, uh, that does not apply to endorsing or enabling a lifetime of running a training academy of ungodliness. Is he correct? Can I can I jump in on this one? Oh, please. Um, so um, I became a Christian uh, at the University of Michigan my freshman year, and I grew up in a really secular home. <clears throat> my dad was married and divorced four times. And when I became a Christian, the hardest verse in the Bible for me was honor your father mm. And your mother. It wasn't hard for me to honor my mother. It was really hard for me to honor my father. And the reason why it was hard for me to honor my father is that he wasn't, a, he wasn't a particularly honorable guy. And so I spent a lot of time in the first part of my Christian life looking for, you know, kind of like people look for a loophole in the tax code. <laughs> I was looking for a loophole in this command to honor your father and mother. And I wrestled with it for years. And, of course, Paul picks this up and says, honor your father and mother. It'll go well with you. And there was just something in my heart I didn't want to honor my father, and I didn't actually know how to honor my father. And I didn't know if he, if you know, where where did I stand in all of this? I finally came to a point of surrender on this, and it's a long story, but um, I, I realized that my father, and I was I was the son of my dad's third marriage, so I didn't come into the world in an honorable way. Um, and, and so I finally came to a point where I said, you know what, God, my father is my God appointed father, whether he sees that or not, he is my earthly representative Hmm. and I have to honor my father. And it actually began a healing process, you know, with my dad, uh, that, um, you know, it was messy. We didn't get it all figured out. Um, he died in 2007 and I found out at his memorial service that he had become a Christian. Wow. I was the only one of the four kids to go to his memorial service. And so I wanted to jump in on this question because it's really practical for me. Yeah. uh, But it also represents a a really, really difficult, difficult, painful family journey for me uh, in my relationship Mm -hmm. with my dad. Great story. Thank you very much, Corbin. That's amazing. Really good. What are you doing next Thursday? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, this is fun. (laughs) Uh, Anybody else have uh, any comments on that? Otherwise, I'll take a break. All right, we're going to take a little break and come back. Lots of time for your questions, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Yeah. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just climbed in your car, I hope you've had a spectacular day. Thank you for tuning in to Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. I've got Greg B, Tom P, and Jeff V with special guest Dr. Corbin Hornbeek. <laughs> I didn't abbreviate his name. I, I was going to be nice. Smart move. Yeah. Smart yeah. Move. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice comment came in to Corbin's point. I always think God sets us up for yeah. personal growth by having us have to deal with the one thing we don't want to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Good word. Yeah. It's fantastic. Okay. Um, if a, if my child accepts Jesus while at Bible camp. When they were nine years old, but now in their twenties, they have no interest in Christianity. Are they still saved? 
Yeah, well, we were just talking about this last hour, this common question, and I'm sure you guys all get it often as well, is this idea, do we have true assurance of salvation or not? Um, Here's the rub. I think doctrinally we can proclaim that once a person is born again, they receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with them forever. Uh, God says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. He says your salvation is kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power until that day. He says you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a, as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. So there are dozens and dozens of passages that declare doctrinally that once a person is born again, they're born again for all of eternity. And therefore, we can have true assurance of salvation. Now, the problem is, is people then want to say, well, what about my cousin Joe? Or what about my, you know, my brother Bob? Uh, Where are they at? And it's like, I can tell you the doctrine, but I can't see anybody's heart. Yeah. See, the whole idea is it says now we see darkly. We don't see clearly. So we're in no position to arbitrate um, uh, the question of whether or not somebody is saved because that's between them and the person who saves them since salvation was not from us, it's from God. He knows their heart. Now, it's obvious when, like I, I think I shared before, my wife says, you know, if, if you haven't front slid, then you can't, you, how can you backslide unless you first front slid? <laughs> so the idea is, is that there, there should, it says in Scripture, there should be some fruit befitting repentance. Now, it may t- they may have a long gestation period before that fruit uh, becomes evident. And so we need to go ahead and give that some time. But we can't make that judgment. Now, it doesn't mean that we aren't, don't use wisdom, that we're not going to put those, those people in positions of responsibility and authority in our church or give them uh, authority over other believers until we see some, some uh, you know, fruit from, from their repentance. But we can't judge whether or not they're saved just because of... We can't see their hearts. We can't see their heart. One of the neat things, uh, we had a summer camp every summer for 10 years up on Stony Lake up in northern Minnesota. And it was very evangelical. And we would have literally, I mean, here we are Lutherans having altar calls, but we did it. (laughs) And we had a lot of kids come to Christ, which I was very much for. Now, one of the things I look at when I look at that situation, and I appreciate the the, uh, person who sent the question is about what's happened. We now, as believers... You know, no longer can be just put off by that individual who has now claimed Jesus at some point in their life. Now we can start challenging them about being a disciple. Mm -hmm. How are you representing Jesus then if you're not reading his word? How are you doing if you're not proclaiming that? You know, you made a commitment to Jesus. Why aren't you honoring the commitment you made to him? Because I think we have a tendency to let the world take over in people's lives and we kind of deal with whatever they're dealing with instead of saying, you made a commitment to be a disciple. You know, now, how can we help you get there? All right. Earlier in the program, you were discussing rewards for the works we did. How does Ephesians 2.10 relate to that? And does God prepare these same works beforehand? You know, what's interesting is is that none of us are, are here by coincidence, happenstance, or by mistake. It says in Psalm 139 that God superintended our formation in our mother's womb. He knew us before ever were. He set the number of days to live on this earth. Then in Ephesians 2.10, it talks about that God has prepared good works for us in advance. Now, the way that I read that and understand that, we were on the heart of God before we ever existed. 
We were planned birth is what we were. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are things that God has set before us. For some unfathomable reason, infinite God has chosen as finite creatures to facilitate his redemptive purposes in a fallen world. Go figure, because if we were in the seat of decision, we wouldn't have chose us. But God does. So he has a purpose for our lives, a unique purpose. We have a general purpose, but we all have a calling. You don't have to go to seminary to get a calling. God gives every follower of Christ a calling. It's like this grand mosaic of God's activity that if your piece is missing, it's very obvious when you look at the totality of that mosaic. You have a part to play, and it's tuning your heart to the heart of God to find out what that purpose is that God prepared in advance for you to fulfill. I think this verse ties right in with where there is so much confusion in Christianity over we are predestined. I do not believe some are predestined to go to heaven and some are predestined to go to hell regardless. I just don't believe that. I don't see that in Scripture. What I do believe is if you take this, we are God's workmanship, that also can be translated to work of art, which I think is very interesting, mm-hmm. you know, kind of as Mona Lisa in that mm-hmm. sense, that the Lord has already set us apart for that. Our goal in life is to so listen to him that through all the trials and the temptations, whatever in life, we shape into his mold. We become more and more like him until the very day we die. And that's why I encourage people all the time. Your Christian walk is not just to be a good person or not just to go to church or not just to, to give money. Your goal is to become more and more like Jesus. And as you shape yourself into that mold and you really do seek to do that, then you become his work of art. I mean, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses um, 11 through 16, it talks about the purpose of the church. And then most people attribute the purpose of the church to verse 12 to build up the body. But that's not the purpose of the church. That's the means to the purpose. You find the purpose in verse 13, and then Paul again repeats it in verse 15, exactly what you said, Tom, that we are to grow into Christ-likeness. So the the job of the church is to produce Christ-likeness in Christ followers Yes. through the process of building them up and teaching them and growing them. That is the ultimate purpose. Yeah. Nicely done. Gentlemen, in Romans 12, uh, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How do we do that? Maybe I can jump in Please do, uh, on this a little bit. Yeah. Um, we have selected Jeremiah chapter 29 and not verse 11 uh, as our passage that's guiding our, uh, our kind of our, our vision for the university. So if you back up, of course, we all know Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you. And we tap two of these on our bodies and put them on our refrigerators and things like that. Uh, but if you back up in that passage, um, Jeremiah is, is talking to a, a group of Israelites who have been exiled in Babylon. And what he says to this group of, um, you know, the, the leaders of Israel the best of the best, it's kind of a brain drain from Jerusalem to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is the, you know, king. And he says, go into Babylon, settle down, build houses, plant vineyards, get married, have sons and daughters, live life. And then he says a crazy thing, really. He says, um, seek the welfare of Babylon. Yeah. And he says, and if you do that, um, not only will they be blessed, but you'll be blessed too. The blessing of God comes by seeking first the, the blessing and the good of Babylon. And I think it's an instructive passage for we who are believers in a very secular world today. How are mm-hmm. we then to live as Christians in a dark and secular world? We're to seek the welfare, the good of those who don't 
align their worldview with ours. Um, and I think that's an encouraging passage to think about how we live as Christians in a secular world today. Go and seek the welfare of the Twin Cities. Go and seek the welfare of your community, um, and particularly those who may not uh, share our worldview. That is such a powerful word in the sense that I hear from many Christians today this kind of escapist kind of attitude. Why, why don't we all just move to some small town out in yeah. the country and separate ourselves from the world? Why don't we go by an island someplace and separate ourselves from the world? And I don't think God ever calls us mm-hmm. to separate us from the world. We're not of this world, but we are in yeah. this world. And I think he still wants us to live in this world, being salt and light and looking out for the good, even of Babylon, That's right. which I would argue America is starting to look a lot like Babylon. <laughs> That's these days. right. That's our calling. It's interesting. Back in the mid-80s when I was pastor at Trinity Lutheran in Minnehaha Falls, big congregation, a lot going on. That's where we're getting a lot of Vietnamese that are resettling here after the war and everything else. We're coming to America. Our government didn't know what to do with them. They would show up, you know, and they would get off the boat and they'd be here. But what do you do now? Kind of like what's going on at the border right now. We had one woman in that congregation who was there long before I showed up and started the ministry. She said, they're going to come into my house. I'm going to bring them in. I'm going to help them. And she helped them not only with education, but how to make money, how to get a job, how to do all this. In the end, and she's now passed away, she gathered a whole group of Christians to help her. They helped over 100 Vietnamese families acclimate to America. And here's the big thing. Most of those Vietnamese families became Christians because mm. she never left Jesus out of the equation. Amen. This is what we should be doing all the time if we're going to be effective in overcoming evil with good. Really nice. All right. Let me uh, ask you this question. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 16 says that believers in Samaria were baptized but hadn't yet received the Spirit. <laughs> Can one believe and be baptized without receiving the Spirit? this is this is a an interesting passage in the sense that we know that starting in acts chapter 2 when you believe in the lord jesus christ the holy spirit comes upon you and and yet we have a couple instances here's in acts chapter 8 and there's another one where paul has to lay hands on people because they hadn't received the holy spirit yet uh, they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit, the passage says. And so Paul prays for them and they receive the Holy Spirit. I, I, Acts, remember, is a transitionary book. We know that today, the moment you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. So right. remember, there was a baptism uh, that uh, was John's baptism, was a baptism of repentance, not a believer's baptism. That was before Christ. And I think that's what's going on here. I think the simple answer is the moment you believe, Uh, You receive the Holy Spirit, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then God calls you to be baptized with water once you've believed and are saved. Well, it's interesting because in the New Testament, Peter identifies, you know, a whole household of people who are speaking in tongues. And he says, shouldn't they be baptized also? You know, and so it's kind of the opposite. The point is here that not everybody, when the Spirit comes into life, is going to have some dramatic experience or some some revelation. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But then the the church saw that they needed to pray for these people to get them more in tune with the Spirit. And so I think the New Testament is good at never giving us a formula. It is good at mm. showing us all the different ways the Holy Spirit works. And, and therefore, I'm always amazed at that. And in my ministry, I have seen people come alive to the Holy Spirit, you know, 
at the moment they receive Christ, and I've seen others that it took them a long time before they were talking I've always thought it would be really cool if we still saw tongues of fire coming down (laughs) when someone believed and received the Holy Spirit today. I would love it. Mm -hmm. All right, gentlemen, how do we count it all joy when we face such trials and temptations? When you figure that one out, will you email me? I will indeed. <laughs> well, there's there's a difference between happiness and joy. We conflate them today to be one and the same. You cannot be happy and mournful at the same time, but you can be joyful and mournful at the same time because joy is an internal quality. It's not stimulated, instigated, or catalyzed by an outside experience that causes you to be happy. It's about your internal contentment. And so you, even in the midst of trials, you can be joyful because you know where your hope resides. It's in Jesus Christ. It's an, it's an acknowledgment that you, you know, you, you're not your own. You've been bought with the prices you referred to, and you belong to the kingdom of God. But you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. You can have joy in the midst of mourning, mm-hmm. but not happiness. I can, Go ahead, Jeff. No, I was just going to recount. There's a story in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles are arrested. They they were probably going to be killed, but uh, there's a guy who stands up that says, hey, this might be from God. Uh, and so they just beat him and, and send them on their way. But there's verse 41 in Acts chapter 5. It says this, and then the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. That's yeah. what I think Paul was talking about in that verse. And I tell you, it it is. I know what you're saying, Greg, but still, can we real? Is that our first response when we suffer as Christians or are persecuted to rejoice because we feel worthy to suffer for His name? Mm. All right, we'll take a break and be right back with more guy talk. Let me know if you've got a question. Text it over eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I've got uh, Greg B, Tom P, Jeff V. And Dr. Corbin Hornbeek. We'll be right back. (laughs) Oh, there's so much sadness and desperation and loneliness, especially at Christmas time. It seems to me that there is almost like a big magnifying glass on the world, and we see problems just magnified, and we see people in their desperate situations, almost worse than ever. But there is something we can do about it. And when we think of the story of Jesus, that is the story of hope. And if you have a story to tell, and you can give hope to someone this year by sharing their story, we want you to do it. You can go do that at myfaithradio.com. I encourage you to do it. Welcome back to Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. We've got a great power panel today, an exceptional power panel today, only because our distinguished president of the university is here with us, Dr. Corbin Hornbeek. So thank you, Corbin, for joining us. It's been great having you so far. Thank you. Thank um, you. Now, you uh, you came to us from Newport Beach, California, uh, so you, you're going to have some, uh, I know this is not your, <laughs> your second year? <clears throat> yeah. Second yeah. year, yeah. So um, uh, I'm always curious, as we start moving into December, um, just what kind of of traditions that we as we do as families do you are are you is your family nuts about christmas 
You know, our our kids. So we had this long debate, and it's been actually settled moving oh, to, moving to to Minnesota because we always had this debate. Our kids wanted to start decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving, and I'm the kind of guy that wants to take the tree down. You know, the after, afternoon of Christmas day, <laughs> and so um, you know, I, I was one of the guy that wanted to shorten the thing. Let's let's get a tree on December 23rd and take it down on December 25th. <laughs> <laughs> so what we noticed moving here to uh, Minnesota is that people start decorating the day after Halloween. Yep. And and yep. so you just, you know, when in Rome. And so you just got to go with it. And so now I think it's just cool that the lights are all up and I've been changed and transformed. Well, it's because you're doing it in warmer weather, too. That's why you start decorating earlier. <laughs> well, exactly. So you don't have to put up lights and trees in the middle exactly. of December, right? Yeah. My wife starts decorating just as that, just as you described the day after the 31st, day after Halloween. Oh, yeah. We now have 11 Christmas trees what? in our house right oh, now. Oh, my word. What? Really? Various sizes. Yeah. We got one that's got an English flavor to it, one an Irish flavor. We're just all over the house, and she just goes crazy, but it's absolutely stunning. Oh, but that's, that's And we don't take it down until about 15 days after Christmas. And, and if you go long enough, like... Some people do in Minnesota. Then you just leave them up all year, <laughs> yeah, all year long. By the time you get to June thirtieth, you might as well just keep the lights yeah, on. Yeah, that's, right. Right. that's right. I'm still looking for my Lanale train that I got in 1955, but it's not showing up anymore. <laughs> all right. Um, Proverbs 16:31 says that a long life is a reward of the righteous. But in Philippians 1:23, Paul says he longs to go home and be with the Lord, which would be far better. So. How is long life a blessing? <laughs> this is a awkward, nice awkward pause, by the way. I love it. We live, we're living much longer than people did back then. Well, no, you know, in the beginning, they were 900 years. But by the time you get down to, to this age group, they were getting down there quite low. <clears throat> the bottom line is um, it depends on the person. And what the Lord wants to do with them. Yeah. For some people, living a long life can be a very fruitful thing, and they, they do that. Some people go home with the Lord early, and I don't think they want to come back once they go. So it's kind of what the Lord wants to do. And the thing I'm always cautious of when I read the Old Testament and New Testament is I want to see how they compare together before I make a definitive theological statement out of something in the Old Testament or the long life. What is Paul saying here? How do they fit? Do they fit? And... Then I came to the conclusion, hey, I don't know how many days I've got. I'm going to live them the best I can until the Lord calls me home. That's right. I think think of uh, Psalm 90, verse 10, uh, maybe 10 or 11. Teach me to number my days aright that I may gain a heart of wisdom. And so there's something that comes with um, having a maybe a circumspect view of life. Uh, The goal is not to live to be 100 or 95, but for however many days God would give us whether that's you know 50 years or 80 years or 25 years, um, to develop a heart of wisdom uh, that is honoring to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, gentlemen, what about uh, video games? Are video games that are violent, should they be avoided as Christians? I think uh, you could go to that verse in Philippians where it says, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. I think that as Christians, our, our, my, my mom told me long ago, our mind is like a computer, right? 
It's programmed by what you feed it. And so I think we want to think about what is pure, what is noble, what is right, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy. Think about such things. Paul also says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So I think there are things that aren't necessarily sinful, if but are there are things that are more God-honoring and, and that will program you in the Lord's ways instead of the world's ways. I think violent video games, especially some of the really violent ones, uh, are not God-honoring and should be invo- yeah, avoided yeah, as Christians. I, I, I'm in total agreement. I mean, this may not be um, uh, very popular to hear, but, you know, you take a look at some of the advertisements of some of these games that are on TV right now, and they're, they're just terribly uh, vicious and brutal. And what's the redeeming quality? And I agree with you, Jeff. I mean, the fact of the matter is you are who you hang around with. And if you're spending all your time playing video games, especially violent video games, don't think for a minute that's not going to rub off on you right. in terms of your perceptions or your attitudes. You may be thinking, well, oh, I'm just in the, you know, the darkness of my, my basement and just playing these games and passing the time away. But you're going to have an impact on, on everybody within your sphere of influence. And you may think it's hidden, but it, it's going to impact how you engage life. It definitely will. And the good news is um, there are now Christians who are doing these kind of videos that are biblical, that they can, you know, you can walk the road to Emmaus. You can, you know, be with Samson and fighting the lion off, that type of thing. So I, I think what parents need to do is not let, simply let their kids play a video game because most of our kids get them from other kids at school and we don't even know it, but to observe what they're doing. And then in the observation, give them alternatives. Mm-hmm. Just a couple yeah. minutes left, gentlemen. How would you define Christian maturity? Christian maturity. You know, Paul <clears throat> in, in Colossians uses the word perfection, mm-hmm. uh, the Greek word uh, be, you know, to become perfect in Christ. So, but the word is really mature. And uh, so much of that, I think we think very practically about our own life. Um, there's no such thing as perfection this side of heaven. We know, you know, John says that when we, when we die, we'll be with Jesus and we'll be like Jesus. That's the kind of the ultimate promise and the hope that we look forward to. But uh, maturity is a process, and it's a, it's a. Um, uh, we know that that there is a starting point and an end point. It goes back to something we talked about earlier in the show in the program uh, about surrendering our will uh, to God. We cannot. There's no chance that we can possibly experience anything close to maturity without surrendering on a daily basis and bringing our sinful, fallen human nature before the throne of God mm-hmm. and spreading I, that each day. I think one quick way to take a look at that in George's spiritual maturity is how much of the fruit of the Spirit is manifested in overt behavior that brings glory and honor to God in your life. Mm. The degree to which the fruit of the Spirit is observable in your life will determine the degree of maturity you currently have in that life. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, thank you so much for another uh, fascinating couple of hours of guy talking. Uh, Corbin, thank you so much for thank being you. with us. Yeah, you are welcome you anytime you'd like to be here. <laughs> Amen. And uh, you. uh, that chair is always open. That's our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening to Guy Talk and supporting Faith Radio. Our one-day winter fundraiser was amazing, and you are amazing. And I love you, and I hope you have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.